Please open your Bibles, therefore, to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking today at verses 15 through 21. Verses 15 through 21. We are somewhere in the neighborhood of about the middle of Paul's lengthy three-chapter section in Ephesians on the imperatives of this book. Again, by way of reminder, he has spent the first three chapters with the indicatives. Again, those indicatives are those things that we enjoy from God, that God has accomplished, those things that are true, that are, because of the work of Christ, what has been done by God through Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the great thing about the first three chapters of Ephesians, as you know, is there's nothing that I do in all of that text. God has done it all, everything, and He has done it well. Amen? If, if you are a fan of the book of Ephesians, and I pray that you are, that is, the, that is one of the things that stands out in the book of Ephesians, is that not only God has God accomplished it, He has accomplished it well. He's done it well. Well, I would invite you to read these verses with me, the, these imperatives. Paul writes in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of of Christ. There is an urgency to this life. Though at times I would acknowledge it doesn't feel like things are urgent. A Sunday afternoon uh, when worship time is over, if we are not privileged to be gathering with one of you, we will go home and enjoy that sanctified nap in the Lord. Amen. And it seems like just a lazy late Sunday afternoon rest in the Lord on on the Christian Sabbath and we enjoy that. And I trust many of you do. Robin's smiling. I know Robin loves the sanctified nap after the worship service. But truth be told there is an urgency to this life. What we are and what we do in this life matters because it has implications both for this life and for eternity. We, as Christians, do not live simply for what we are doing, living, enjoying, or not enjoying, as may be the case in this life, simply for ourselves. And we know this. We have, it has implications for life and for eternity because our very life and everything in it, our time, our possessions, our money, our relationships, our wives, our children, our husbands, are all His. They all belong to Christ. One preacher once said, and I believe it was R.C. Sproul, who said, There is no corner of the universe in which the Lord Jesus Christ does not cry out, Mine. Everything 
belongs to him. And so we, as Christians, are under his authority and we belong to him. We are his possession. And by the way, as a Christian, you ought to be grateful for that. Amen? Grateful to belong to God because what is the alternative? The alternative to belonging to God is to not belong to God. And we don't need to go into the host of problems that come from not belonging to God. All that we are and all that we have been given by God, He has given to us, not so that we can live however we want, however we decide, work where we want, live where we want, enjoy our time the way we want, all self-centered, the way I want. But we have life in Christ, we have this life, we have these possessions, we have these relationships with one another and in our families so that we can steward them to the glory of God. Hope you all agree with that. Amen. In a book entitled, perhaps you're familiar with, The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a collection of old Puritan prayers. I highly recommend it to you. If you do not own a copy of The Valley of Vision, I would... I would get online and find one, even a used copy, and buy it. There is in the Valley of Vision an old Puritan prayer that captures well the Christian's need for a a life that is lived in submission to God. And the prayer goes like this. It's not too long, so don't worry. Listen, by the way, to the way the Puritans used to pray. Lord of immortality, before whom angels bow and archangels veil their faces, enable me to serve you with reverence and godly fear. You who are spirit and require truth in the inward parts, help me to worship you in spirit and in truth. You who are righteous, let me not harbor sin in my heart or indulge a worldly temper or seek satisfaction in things that perish. I hasten toward an hour when earthly pursuits and possessions will appear vain, when it will be indifferent whether I have been rich or poor, successful or disappointed, admired or despised, but it will be of eternal moment that I have mourned for sin, hungered and thirsted after righteousness, loved the Lord Jesus in sincerity, glorified in His cross. May these objects engross my chief solicitude, produce in me those principles and dispositions that make your service perfect freedom. Expel from my mind all sinful fear and shame, so that with firmness and courage I may confess the Redeemer before men. Go forth with him bearing his reproach. Be zealous with his knowledge. Be filled with his wisdom. Walk with his circumspection. Ask counsel of him in all things. Repair to the scriptures for his orders. Stay my mind on his peace, knowing that nothing can befall me without his permission, appointment, and administration. Now, if, listen, dear Christian, if after listening to that prayer, you're struck with the feeling, man, I I don't know how to pray. Amen. You see, The Puritans understood something. They understood that the Christian's greatest, most pressing need from God is a mind, a heart, and a life that is both open to God and dependent upon Him for everything. In Him we live and move and have our being. Well, this phrase, this 
this walking term that we find in Scripture appears six times in the book of Ephesians. When things are repeated in Scripture, it's not by happenstance, it's on purpose, it's with a goal in mind. And so I want to quickly run through them because I believe that these six occurrences of the term walking will help us get a, a mind or, or an understanding of what Paul is referring to as to how the believer is to walk. First, we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. In Ephesians 2.10 we read, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when we were in Ephesians 2, we saw that the word created is the same creation idea that we find in the book of Genesis, that God created us out of nothing. He creates a Christian out of a dead man. So we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Even our good works come from God. That's a part of the Christian walk. Second, we are to walk worthy of our calling. Worthy of our calling. In Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There is a high and lofty calling to the name Christian. The Christian even needs to learn to say the word differently. We're, we are Christian, are we not? There should be a tingling of the spine and a straightening of it when we say the word Christian. We should walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Third, we are not to walk like the Gentiles. It is the only time that walking is listed in the negative in Ephesians. We are not to walk like the Gentiles walk. And we remember when we, when we looked at Ephesians 4.17 how negative that verse is. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. How gracious it is of God to have given us the mind of Christ so that I don't have to walk according to my own futile thoughts. Fourthly, we are to walk in love. We are to walk in love. And that will take the Christian a lifetime to really come to understand the depths of the love of Christ and that he is to mirror that love to his brothers and sisters in Christ in his Christian relationships and in the church. We are to walk in love. Ephesians 5.2 says, Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. His life was a sacrifice to God. Dear Christian, I would ask you, is your life that already belongs to God, if you know him, you are already his. You are his possession. You are Christian. Does your life belong to him? Do you live it with that in view? Do you live your life in such a manner that in your thoughts, my time belongs to Christ. Where I go, what I do, what I say, what I think belongs to Christ. And is the sacrifice of your life a sweet and smelling, sweet smelling aroma before Him? I fear that sometimes those who name the name of Christ live a life that is a foul stench in the nostrils of God rather than a sweet smelling aroma. Fifthly, we are to walk as children of light. That He has made us, not like children of light, but as children of light. 
We talked last Lord's Day about the distinction between walking like something and being something. Walking in a way that God has made you. Ephesians 5, 8, For you were formerly darkness, but you now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If I am a, a brain surgeon, don't worry, I, I'm not. But if I were a brain surgeon and, and my hands were those instruments that, that, that God had gifted me with and a mind able to perform brain surgery, it wouldn't be very intelligent for me to take up boxing, would it? And to use my hands for something completely foreign and damaging to myself that would interrupt what God had given me as a talent. Sixthly and lastly, the Christian's walk. He is to be careful how he walks. And that's the first verse of our text today. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Take great care how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. If Paul were to paraphrase this verse, he would say something like this. Don't walk like a fool. Walk with wisdom. Walk with godly wisdom. Walk with biblical wisdom. Wisdom from God. And so we are to be careful how we walk. Walking in wisdom being the things that have been commanded of us. Walking in the light, being the light that God has made us, knowing the brevity of our life here on earth. We are here to walk in a manner that will not bring shame or reproach on the name of Christ. As we walk through this life, as we grow older, we hit these milestones and the first milestone for most people is 30. And you think, you know, I'm, I'm still rather young. I've got my whole life ahead of me. 30 is pretty cool, isn't it? I liked 30. And then 40 comes and you say, you know, I'm still all right. I, I'm still pretty strong. I can do most things. I can get around. I can go where I want. I'm... Then 50 comes and you're like, well, you know, yeah, I'm kind of okay still, I think. And then 60 comes, and you turn around, and you go, most of it's behind me. Right? When, when 60 comes, if God has given you the grace of health and, and a good life, and you're still okay, and you can still get around, and you still have a modicum of strength, you think, you know, yeah, 60. But all the other phrases don't accompany it anymore. Because you know your life is well over past, well past half over. You will not be around for another 60 years. If by the grace and mercy of God at 60 you reach 100, that's still 40 years. Or you may reach only 90, that's 30. Or God may allow you only 80, that's still only 20 years. The point I'm making is, is this. Every day that goes by... You are one moment, one breath closer to eternity. And so we are to make the most of our time. Secondly, we are to make the most of our time and be careful how we walk because the Christian knows something the unbeliever suppresses. Amen? We we know something. We've got an inside track to something that the unbeliever doesn't know. We know the day of judgment before God is fast approaching. And it will come for every single one of us here, either in death or the visible return of Christ. But it is coming. 
And make no mistake, brethren, it is coming fast. The day when I will look into the face of Christ is now coming at breakneck speed. Will I make the most of my time? The unbeliever tells himself that he will not stand before a holy God. He suppresses the truth that God will judge and condemn him for his sins. He deceives himself into thinking that God does not see him and does not see all of the sin that he commits. And so he tells himself there is no wrath to come. No eternal punishment. Most people who still say that they believe in God live any way they want to. They're convinced that heaven comes to them simply by dying. And you know this, right? You, you've heard this. And so you'll, you'll hear things like, well, he's in a better place now. You ever heard that? Someone dies? Or, or I just know Uncle Henry's looking down on us and smiling from heaven. And Uncle Henry could have lived the most debauched life on the planet, and yet he got salvation in heaven by death. Well, see, we as Christians know something the unbeliever doesn't, that we don't get heaven simply by death. What we do get at the day of our death is the realization that God is true, and that He is real, and that He is just, and that He will hold every single human being who has ever lived to account. Despite what the Scripture clearly says about the sinner and the wrath of God, the lie that permeates our society, and and sorry to say much of the professing church, is that God is love and He's nothing else. That's all God is, just, just love. Just love. Love is all God is, and so the culture has lost its reverence and its fear of God. To most people, there is no day coming when we will stand before Him and give an account, no day of His justice, nothing to fear. Jesus loves you just the way you are. It is one of the greatest deceptions that the devil has ever perpetrated when he introduced the lie in the garden, has God really said. Well, the Christian also knows that knowing that there is a day when we will stand before God should bring bring to us a sober-mindedness. Not a, not a dour disposition. That's not the disposition of the Christian, right? We should have a joy about us because we know that we have passed from death into life. We've passed from judgment into the mercy of God. And yet it should have us all awake every morning with the knowledge that we have just spent another day of our life and we are now one closer, one day closer to that day. How foolish it is for us to spend our time walking in sin or living for ourselves. It would be like the college student who knew he had a critical test coming and a week before decides that instead he will spend his time running around having fun at the beach and leaving his studies for his own pleasures, deceiving himself that everything will somehow work out for him. And the day of the test comes and he awakes that morning at the last minute and rushes to his class and As he sits looking at the final exam, his heart sinks as he looks at the questions on the test and knows that he has not studied and cannot answer them. And so he fails the test. And so, Christian, we must ask ourselves, the day is coming. On the day when God brings all of your works and your life before His throne of judgment and and in even the midst of His grace, judges what you have done with your life, will 
your works stand the tests? Are you living, living this day for Him? Psalm 90 contains a statement that is often quoted and with good reason. But I actually want to read, instead of just verse 12, I want to read verse 11. And it says this, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You see, if the Christian is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called and to make the most of his time because the days are evil, he is to walk in a way that reflects a fear of God and he is to have a heart of wisdom. Second, verse 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine. That's the complete opposite of wisdom. When you see someone who has spent an inordinate amount of time drinking alcoholic beverages and they've gotten to the point of drunkenness, you don't think, well, there's a wise person. That's, that's not a thought that comes to the Christian's mind, is it? And so Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the obvious question is, what is it to be filled with the Spirit? What does that mean? What is, what is it that Paul is getting at? Well, first, it is not some second impartation of grace or, or some baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes after you are saved, something that comes sometime later after re- regeneration. The Spirit-led Christian life is not a life spent getting drunk or high, or for that matter, indulging the flesh. So being filled with the Spirit is a life spent serving Christ. It is a life spent in the Word of God. It is a life spent in those Christian disciplines and in the worship of God. And so it leads the Christian then to find his peace and joy in the Lord Jesus and not in a substance. Being drunk with wine is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with a a man-made substance to the point that you lose your senses. And do not have the Christian mind. Well, what does it look like for the Christian to be filled with the Spirit of God? I think that's a great question. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 through 2. And listen to what he says here. That is, I believe, an apt description of being filled with the Spirit of God. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Your bodies, that's a way of saying your life, the entirety of everything in it. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a little difficult to renew your mind when you're in a state of drunkenness. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Spirit-filled Christian is the Christian who is walking in obedience. And so our bodies and our minds belong to God, or they are for His use. And whatever gifts God has given to men for enjoyment must not be abused and must be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Food, wine, possessions, all of the things that God has given to men are gifts. All of them. He never intended those gifts to be abused or to take his place, but they must be enjoyed with thanksgiving to a gift-giving God. 
If you have ever given someone a gift and watched an ungrateful reaction, you know what I'm talking about. I can remember when I was 16 years old, my father, who didn't make a lot of money, saved up his money to buy a really nice acoustic guitar for me. Like a lot of 16 years olds, unfortunately, I was rather preoccupied with a certain portion of my body right around my navel. He hands me the guitar for my birthday and I said, thanks, Dad, took it and turned around and walked away. Ingratitude, an ungrateful spirit. We are to be grateful to God. We are to live a life of thanksgiving that does not abuse the gifts that God has given us. Third, how does the Christian relate or speak to his brethren if he is a spirit-filled Christian? Verse 19, after Paul says, But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. First, notice the text begins with the words, But be filled with the Spirit. That precedes the verse, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So being filled with the Spirit is having the Holy Spirit be the indwelling and controlling presence in your life, in your heart, and in your mind. Are you Spirit-controlled? Does the Word of God control your life? Does Scripture control how you think and how you act? You see, being filled with the Spirit means to so saturate your life with Christ and His Word that it leads you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's how we get there, and there is no shortcut. Only by pouring the Word of God into me does the Holy Spirit have the Word to use in my life. James Boyce, writing of this being filled with the Spirit, says that something that it is something that is urged upon Christians, which is what Paul does here. But it does not concern any special miraculous gifts, such as speaking in tongues. Rather, it refers to our so being under the Holy Spirit's control and leading that our thought life and our life are entirely taken up with Jesus Christ. That should be the end and the goal in mind to whom it is the Spirit's chief responsibility to bear witness. In Acts, there are ten occasions at Pentecost and afterwards when an individual or group of individuals is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. In each case, the common factor is that the person involved, and here's the point, immediately bears testimony to Jesus Christ. You say, well, what is the goal of being filled with the Spirit, it's very simply this, so that the life of the Christian will point to Christ. And so Paul goes on and he tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The first thing about verse 18 and 19 that I want to point out is that we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is clearly something that would have been a practice in the early church to speak spiritual words to one another. I believe that primarily what it is saying here is that our conversation is speaking the words of Scripture to one another. Godly conversation among God's people. So I would ask you to turn over to Colossians 3 for a moment. 
And let's read together verses 12 through 17 because I want to get a context. Paul puts these words in a little in a, in a little different way that will help us understand what he's saying here. Because at first blush it seems a little odd to say speak to another one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Paul, shouldn't you, shouldn't you have written sing to one another? How am I going to speak a hymn to you or a or a song, or a psalm. Well, Colossians 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Christian conduct. Amen. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Now, before we get to the verses that I want to get to, notice how verse 16 begins. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Now, here's where the controversial part comes in. There is a long-standing argument from this text and one other regarding the position of something called exclusive psalmody. Who's familiar with that term, EP, or exclusive psalmody? Three people. Let's see if we can make everybody familiar with it. It is that understanding that says that the psalms are the only songs, the only songbook that God has given to the people of God throughout redemptive history. And there is a sense in which that is true. The only songbook we have in the entirety of the Bible is the book of Psalms. It's a songbook. A collection of 150 psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All three titles are found in the book of Psalms. In the Septuagint, and for those who might not know what the Greek Septuagint is, the word Septuagint is from the word 70, and it is from that time in history when 70, over a period of time, 70 Hebrew Jewish scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament into Greek. So that at the time of Christ, the Bible that would have been in use as is commonly agreed among among church historians, was the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. The Greek, because most people, or a lot of people, had lost the ability to speak Hebrew, even a lot of Jews. The common language of the day was Greek. And so you would have been carrying around a Septuagint. Many, if not most of the quotations that are found in the New Testament are from the Greek Septuagint. In the Greek Septuagint, in the book of Psalms, there are three titles, three words that appear throughout the 150 Psalms, and they are these three words. Psalm noise, for Psalms. Hymn noise, 
for hymns, and the Greek word odes, for or or songs. An ode is a song. You're probably familiar with the old English word for ode. It means a song, right? It's all an ode means. And so you find in those titles quite often throughout the 150 Psalms that it is either a hymn, a psalm, or an ode of, of David or of one of the other writers. So question, what is it that the Christian is to say when he teaches and admonishes one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and when he sings with thanks, thankfulness in his heart to God, when you make melody in your heart to God. What is the best indication from, from Scripture as to what Paul is talking about when he speaks of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? I believe it is simply this, that he is talking about those Songs, those hymns and those spiritual songs, psalms that are found in the Old Testament. And I say, why do you think that that's what Paul is talking about? Is the Christian to teach or to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? And when he sings with thankfulness in his heart to God, is he to sing and to teach and to admonish with the words of Scripture? Or is he to sing and to admonish having the word of Christ richly dwell in him with the words of men? Say, hmm, something to think about. Amen? I believe that what Paul is getting at is that our conversation with one another should be from the word of God. Not to be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but being filled with the Spirit... We are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and make melody with our heart to the Lord. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's a part of how we are to communicate to God, to, to, to pray His Word back to Him and to sing in our hearts to God with thankfulness. We are to be a thankful people, a grateful people, not a complaining people, not to be a grumbling people. How often have have you, I'm sure you're never guilty of this being Christians, but how often have you been around a Christian who has been deep in complaining and grumbling and life is terrible and, and God is not happy with me and things are hard instead of a joyful, grateful attitude? See, if we are always giving thanks for all things, everything, all the time, in the name of Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, it leaves no room for complaining, does it? Now, I'll admit, that's hard. That's tough stuff. What is the first impulse of the Christian when, when we feel persecuted, or we feel picked on, or we feel that life isn't going our way, we want to complain? As if somehow complaining or grumbling is going to help them the situation or solve the problem. I can assure you it does neither. But to have a grateful attitude. To give thanks for all things in the name of Christ to God the Father, even the hard things in life. And to do it with the Word of God. And finally, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, some would view verse 21, some commentaries... In 
the order of things with verse 22. They would group 21 with 22 and following on marriage. I'm going to tell you up front, I don't do that. I don't put verse 21 with 22 and following. And let me explain why and see if I can defend that position. There are two textual reasons why I believe that verse 21 belongs with the preceding admonitions and commands of God, but not necessarily with 22 and following. The first reason is is the language of the preceding verses. The commands beginning in chapter 4 and running all the way until verse 20 are commands to the church in general, the, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of Christians. That is the scope and intent of all of the commands until verse 21. Classes of individuals, however, would be rulers, authorities, husbands, children, wives, masters, and slaves, groups, or classes of individuals within the, within the church. We see the same exegesis that we find in 1 Timothy 2. Listen carefully, you're familiar with this text if you are Reformed. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and we we are familiar with that with the fact that some will take that all men to say every man woman and child has ever lived on the face of the planet right therefore we are to pray for the dead amorite priest who's been dead for 3000 years we're, we're, we're to pray for everyone who died in the antediluvian flood we're we're to pray for all men everywhere for all time if that's the exegesis, right? Look at what he says. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And if all men is every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, then we need to be praying for the dead. But look at what verse 2 says. It says, for kings and all who are in authority. We would call that a qualifier, right? We're to make entreaties and to pray for and to give petitions and thanksgiving on behalf of all men. Paul, what do you mean by all men? For kings and all who are in authority. Why do we want to do that? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, what we have before us in 1 Timothy 2 is a passage governed by the qualifier we find in the passage. Amen? By the phrase, all men, Paul surely does not mean all men who have ever lived throughout all of human history. Get out the Inland Empire phone book and start with A and pray through the entire phone book and you've not even begun, have you? But the objection comes in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, Jesus desires all men everywhere for all time to be saved. You see, there is a class of individuals, kings and those who are in authority, governors, presidents, Supreme Court nominees, all a class of people. And so the implication, the first reason I do not believe that verse 20 one goes with the following verses, but with that which precedes it is because of the change in language that we find beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. 
Second, the implications of placing verse 21 with the following imperatives to husbands and wives would also mean that husbands are to be in subjection to their wives because verse 21 says what? Submit to one another, right? Be in subjection to one another. Or, or how about verse 5 of chapter 6 of Ephesians? If verse 21 is to govern everything that follows it, verse 22 and on, then should not masters also be in subjection to the slaves? See, if we're going to apply a solid biblical hermeneutic, uh, a consistent exegetical method, then we have to recognize when the scripture makes divisions between the church and classes of individuals. Now, what I'm not saying, just to jump ahead briefly before we finish this, is that the husband is not to love and to serve and to care for and to protect his wife. We will get into that in just a few short weeks. But this kind of relationship between the husband and the wife is different from that of my relationship with the church in a narrow respect. If I say to my wife, I love you, but then I say... To, to Aaron, I love you. You would have the expectation that I'm talking about two different kinds of love, wouldn't you? I, I better not be extending the kind of meaning of I love you to Aaron that I extend to my wife, or Mike's going to come and beat me up. <laughs> it better be a different kind of love to my wife. All the wives say amen. You see, being in subjection to one another in the fear of Christ, by the way, is to say that we must have the attitude and the heart of a servant, especially in the church. How can can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Are you okay? To have an attitude of humility in the church. Because if there's one thing that does not belong in the church, beloved, it's pride. We must have an attitude that translates into a willingness to serve and to be a servant. A a doulos was a slave. Thirdly, when we do not understand the nature of godly subjection in the church, godly servanthood, godly humility, or if we try to take the text and make it a blanket subjection to everyone in the church, and I've heard commentators, I've read commentators and I've listened to people take that verse, be in subjection to one another and say, well, it applies in the marriage relationship. You know, if you begin to talk about the wife's subjection, being in subjection to the husband, and they say, yeah, but look at verse 21, it says they're to be in subjection to one another. And there is a sense in which that's true, even in a marriage relationship. But if it's not if it's to be applied uniformly so that there is no differentiation between the subjection of the wife to the husband and the husband to the wife and they're to submit to one another in exactly the same way, then it robs the meaning of marriage and Christ in the church. It completely invalidates the picture of Christ and his bride. And we'll see that in just a few short weeks. Father, we thank you.